I've read John many times, and I've taken classes about John. Back when I was a teen, I was in Bible quizzing, and we did the book of John. So like, there might have been a point in my life where I could have quoted most of this. But, but somehow, as, as we're walking through it this time, I'm seeing Jesus in a new light. I'm seeing Jesus as a lot more confrontational and bold and fearless than what I had previously thought. And, I, and I'm seeing how um, Jesus is able to extend mercy to those with humble hearts and confrontation to those with, proudful, with pride heart, prideful hearts. And he's able to do that sometimes in the same sentence. Uh, so, some of you last week, you, you were here when, when Pastor Dell kind of opened up that story in John 8 of the woman caught in adultery and judged by the people around her and, and the whole narrative that unfolds as Jesus eventually says to her, go and sin no more. And, and, and just to see how Jesus was so loving, so caring to those in need who would, who would approach him in humility and yet face so much resistance from those who were proud. So the story is better than we think. We know that it kind of all starts back in John 1. Uh, when, you, when you believe in Jesus, according to John 1, you get to be a part of God's family. And that's why this isn't someone else's story that's better than you think, or even just Jesus' story is better than you think. But your story can be better than what it is today when you become a part of the family of Jesus. When you believe in him, uh, he transforms you, he changes you, and now your story is an eternal story, not just limited here um, by physical dimensions, time and space and all that. Now it's a spiritual story. And we, we've also learned from John that we're responsible not just to take this great news and hold it to ourselves, but just like those first few disciples in John 1, you know, that they didn't have seminary degrees, they didn't have memorized outlines. All they knew was that they had met the Messiah and their job was to go tell other people, I've met the Messiah, you've got to come and see him. And so thankfully, I'm thankful they did that because one person told another person who told another person eventually told me that Jesus is the Messiah that I've been looking for in my life. And God might use you even this week to share that good news with someone. So, so far, the Gospel of John has introduced us to Jesus through a whole variety of stories and metaphors. And some of these are really challenging. Some of these are so obvious and you almost laugh at the characters in the story that are kind of knowingly missing the point. Today we'll encounter a few more of those. Uh, what we see is Jesus not only performing miracles throughout this gospel, but also fulfilling prophecies. Prophecies that if you were a teacher of the law back in ancient Israel, you would have been well acquainted with. You would have known what the Messiah was supposed to do when he came. And then you would have seen Jesus doing some of those things and had to make a decision. Well, I believe that this, in fact, is the Messiah. Here, all these miracles kind of give evidence of his power. Uh, over here, you could have this whole list of evidences from the Old Testament uh, to show just prophecy after prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling. Um, and yet, not quite what people expected. And so they all have this choice to make. Will I put my faith in Jesus? Will I choose to believe in him? Or will I continue to believe in myself, my own perception, my own wisdom? Uh, up until this point in the text, I think you could say evidence for Jesus being the Messiah is mounting. But hostility against Jesus is also mounting. Uh, because those who don't want Jesus to be their Messiah, those who've chosen not to believe... They're getting angrier and angrier as the story progresses. Um, and one of the reasons they're so upset is because Jesus tells the truth. Jesus isn't afraid of them. 
Okay, so in John 9 and 10, which Allison, you did a great job reading today for us. Thanks for that. Um, Here's what we essentially saw unfold. Jesus does a miracle of mercy. I mean, here is a, a man blind from birth. Jesus has the power to heal him. Jesus reaches out, offers this healing. Here was a guy, he didn't ask for it. He didn't really know who Jesus was. Um, in the middle of the story, we found out all he knew really was Jesus's name. He had no idea the rest of the story. And, and so the crowds are amazed. They're confused. Here's this guy that they, they knew he was blind because they used to see him begging. And, and now he's seeing. So obviously something is up, right? The Pharisees are willingly blind, even though their eyes can see, their hearts don't want to see. And then Jesus uh, ends up revealing his identity to people who are paying attention. Um, And those who are willingly blind, they go on thinking their own thoughts, never realizing that they just had a face-to-face encounter with God, with the Messiah, and they missed it completely. So hopefully that doesn't happen to us as we read this scripture and come face-to-face with what uh, happened here. So, You saw the story of the blind man in the first part of chapter 9. What I'd like to do is go over to 9.16. And uh, and what we're going to do is... You guys, maybe you can check my connection there. Um, We're going to look from 9.16 forward and just sort of see this this amazing interplay um, unravel in front of us here as, as the Jewish leaders are just sinking down into almost comic chaos over a miracle that they could have been rejoicing over. A person they all knew was blind could now see, but they didn't want to accept the miracle. Why? Because they did not want to have to admit that Jesus is actually from God. They they wanted to do anything they could to explain this thing away. So you, you all, and I look at this and I think there's multiple laugh lines in this Bible text, which usually don't say that about the Bible, right? But here, as you read through it, you just think, this is ridiculous how willingly blind some of these people were. So it starts off, if you look to verse 11, actually, uh, the, the, the Pharisees, the people who were schooled in the law, they come right out and say, okay, to this blind man, who healed you? Like, who did this? And he says, well, uh, I don't know. Where is he? I don't, I don't know. It's just all they knew is, uh, all, all I know is his name is Jesus. Uh, verse 13, they took that man who'd been blind, the Pharisees. It was the Sabbath. It's interesting how a lot of these miracles kind of interplay with the Sabbath. Probably because Jesus knew that their heart wasn't actually the purity of the law. They had constructed all these regulations, all this framework to kind of sit on top of the law to keep people sort of under control and to keep everybody thinking, you know, kind of ranking who is the most righteous out of all of us, missing the whole heart of it, missing what God actually gave the law to accomplish. So these Pharisees started to question the man in verse 17, and they demanded, what is your opinion about the man who healed you? Well, I think he must be a prophet, the man said. Remember, this guy has no idea who this is. So a blind beggar, they're saying, who is it? Who, you know, tell us the real story. I, I, don't, I don't know. I guess he's a prophet. Well, the Jewish leader still refused to believe that the man had been blind and now could see. So they called in his parents and asked, is this your son? Was he born blind? And if so, how can he now see? <laughs> and so the parents um, they're kind of like, well, I mean, I can verify two of, the, two of the parts of your story. Yes, that is our son. Yes, he was born blind. But then we find out that they're afraid to give the third part of the story because they already know that anyone who goes ahead and agrees that Jesus is the Messiah gets thrown out of the synagogue. It's going to be like being excommunicated from your community. I mean, it'd be a big deal to get thrown out of the synagogue. And so here they're using their kind of power over people to keep everybody, 
you know, kind of in lockdown, a little bit of fear-based leadership here where they make nobody can break the party line. Nobody can say what everyone knows is true or else you're out. All right. So the parents are kind of like, hey, we know this is our son. As for how he got healed, go ahead and ask him like he's a grown man. So they go back to the son again and they keep asking him what they're looking for is for someone to say, no, no, he's not born blind, which I think it's hilarious. A little bit earlier, remember when the crowd is kind of arguing like, who is this? And one person shouts out, it's not him. It's just someone who looks like him. (laughs) That's how far they're willing to reach to get to just make sure that Jesus can't get the credit for this miracle. All right. So verse 25, they, they, they come to the man again. They say, okay, you've got to give glory to God. You can't let this credit go to Jesus because we know Jesus is just like everybody else. Jesus is a sinner. And here's what the man says. I don't know whether he's a sinner, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. That's all the information this guy has. He's not a theologian. He doesn't know the identity of Jesus. So he's kind of caught up in this this rancor that's going on with the Pharisees. And he's just saying, look, all I can tell you is that 100% for sure, my eyes are open and I'm looking at you right now. A miracle has happened. Well, verse 26, what did he do? How, How did he heal you? And then look, the man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? But now you want to hear it again. Do you want to become his disciples too? It's like here, this guy's, I mean, maybe a little smarter than you're giving credit for, right? He's playing their game. And, uh, and then they cursed him, of course, right? And they said, you are his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses. We don't even know where this man comes from. Well, why, that's very strange, the man says. He healed my eyes, yet you don't know where he comes from? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He's ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one's been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. Think, wow, here's this blind beggar, like, schooling all the teachers, right? I mean, really obvious stuff. You're a, I love NLT in this. You were born a total sinner. Like, they're just trying to reach for the deepest insult they can muster. Man, you are just full of sin. You're out. So they excommunicate him from the synagogue. Uh, now he's out on his own, and you think this is like the best day and the worst day of this poor guy's life, right? His eyes are open, and the first thing he's greeted with is this angry mob of church leaders or whatever who throw him out. So he's wandering around, and Jesus goes ahead and finds him and says, hey, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man says, I, I don't know a whole lot about him, but I'm, I'm willing, yes. And then Jesus said, you have seen him, like you're looking at him right now. And, and, and the guy becomes a believer right there. He worships Jesus. And then we see this spiritual blindness kind of unfold. Jesus told him in verse 39, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think that they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, Are you saying we're blind? You know, if, if, you're, a little, if you're a little more sarcastic, you could go, No, of course not. I mean, really. <laughs> You've, you've missed all the miracles I performed. You don't understand any of the things I say. The children are following me. The crowds are following You have no idea what I'm saying. But no, no, you're not blind. You see just fine. But, uh, but you know, Jesus says, hey, if you, if you could see, uh, or if you were blind, you wouldn't be so guilty. The reason I'm saying you're guilty is because you think you can see. And then Jesus starts to talk about being the good shepherd, which I think you could look at it this way. The difference between Jesus and these other religious leaders is that Jesus actually cared about the people. 
The Pharisees, the Sadducees, teachers of law, those guys were all concerned about their own power. Like we learned last week, they were all wrapped up in the politics with Rome and who gets to command who around. Jesus actually shows up and he cares about the blind man. He cares about the lame man. He cares about the woman caught in adultery. None of these other people care. And so Jesus starts to give them this metaphor of being a good shepherd with a really strong inference that they're supposed to be good shepherds, right? They've been entrusted with the spiritual leadership of Israel, but they're not laying down their life for the sheep. They're not interested in helping the sheep. Jesus said, the thief comes, this is verse 10 of chapter 10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they can have a rich and satisfying life. I've come to give them life and life abundantly. And you could almost look at the interplay maybe a little bit like this. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm here as a shepherd to bring abundant, satisfying, full life to the sheep that you are supposed to be tending like this blind man. I'll even give my life up for them. Why are you here, shepherds? Pharisees, end of the, end of the section here. Uh, they say, well, we can't listen to you. You're demon-possessed, right? They just dismiss him. We're not, we're not even going to hear this anymore. Uh, cl- close your ears and walk away. And, and so here again, we just see this over and over again where Jesus offers such an obvious example of who he is, what he's there for, and, and the people who are, you know, the, the, somehow the Pharisees are able to turn the victims of like difficulty into the bad guy, like here's this blind man, um, and, and they're able to pin all this on Jesus as one that, you know, we've just got to get rid of this guy, even though you would think if they were good shepherds, if they loved the people under their care, like, I mean, think of this was you. If someone who had been born blind was just given sight, would you not be on the phone, like, calling other people who were born blind or like, hey, let's, let's take this person to the hospital and let's help as many people as we can, obviously has healing power. Or, or, or here's this person who extends love and grace and truth that we all need to hear. Let's, let's put that person on stage and let them share it. But no, the Pharisees are so protective, so worried about their kingdom, their power, that they completely miss the opportunity to be good shepherds to their people. Now, there's more to this interchange. Um, remember, the, the teachers of the law, this, this whole crowd of leaders, they were saturated in the Old Testament. So they were well aware of what the Messiah was supposed to be when he would come. You know, there's a couple places in the Old Testament where the Messiah is referred to as a shepherd. And here's what I think is amazing. Not only is Jesus directly pointing at them and saying, why don't you care? Like, I care for these people. Where are you? But he's also giving another example of how he connects to what the Old Testament promises the Messiah would be. All right, so two texts that I just want to point out to you. We don't have full time to dive into these, but it's great stuff. Isaiah 40 starts off by giving a prophecy related to John the Baptist, that someone's going to come and make this amazing announcement, prepare the way for the Lord, the Lord is coming, and then the Lord is going to come. And in verse 8, or verse 9, he says, O Zion, messengers of good news, shout from the mountaintop, shout it louder, O Jerusalem, shout and do not be afraid, tell the towns of Judah... Your God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. And so as Jesus stands up and says, I am the good shepherd, 
what's going through all of their minds? Well, either they're saying, wow, like he really, he really is the Messiah, or they're saying, how dare you claim that? How dare you tie that prophecy to yourself? All right, but there's even more. And this is where I, I love this one. Um, Ezekiel 34, where you kind of see the, the one layer of conversation, John gives it to us, and that's like literally what Jesus was saying to the, his enemies. But because they knew the law so well, as he gets up and compares them to thieves and robbers, and he's the good shepherd, their minds jump to Ezekiel 34, uh, where a shepherd is promised, a good shepherd is promised, who will come and rescue Israel. But there's a problem. In the way of the good shepherd are a whole bunch of fake shepherds, a whole bunch of false shepherds. And so you can almost see this connection where Jesus is not only telling them they don't care, but he's also saying, hey, you're in the prophecy too. And here it is, Ezekiel 34. Then this message came to me from the Lord, Son of Man, prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. Give them this message from the Sovereign Lord. What sorrow awaits you shepherds who feed yourselves instead of your flocks? Shouldn't shepherds feed their sheep? You drink the milk, you wear the wool, you butcher the best animals, but you let your flocks starve. You have not taken care of the weak, you have not tended the sick or bound up the injured. You have not gone looking for those who've wandered away and are lost. Instead, you have ruled them with harshness and cruelty. So my sheep have been scattered without a shepherd, and they are easy prey for any wild animal. They have wandered through all the mountains and the hills across the face of the earth, yet no one has gone in search for them. Further down in the passage, verse 15, the Lord is speaking. He says, I myself will tend my sheep and give them a place to lay down in peace. I will search for my lost ones who've strayed away. I will bring them safely home again. I will bandage the injured and strengthen the weak. But I will destroy those who are fat and powerful. I will feed them, yes, feed them with justice. Verse 20. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will surely judge between the fat sheep and the scrawny sheep. You who are fat sheep pushed and butted into the crowd... Uh, crowded my sick and hungry flock until you scattered them to distant lands. So I will rescue my flock, and they will no longer be abused. I will judge between one animal of the flock and another, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will feed them and be a shepherd to them, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a picture of the Messiah, will be a prince among my people. I, the Lord, have spoken." So all of this kind of is conjured up by what Jesus says in John 10 as he makes this simple declaration, which I'm sure you've seen before. He just, he just says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. An amazing contrast between who had been leading the sheep and who Jesus came uh, to be, what Jesus came to do. So I, I want to leave you with this. The story continues. The narrative keeps going and runs all the way into chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12, where something big happens, and amazingly, a lot of the Pharisees start to believe, because it gets to become overwhelming evidence beyond any reasonable doubt. We'll talk about that next week. But here's my question for you today, as you think about Jesus being your shepherd. What does it mean for us that he would be our shepherd, to know that we actually are cared for, 
um, the way a shepherd would care for his flock. Now, that's not really a familiar metaphor to us. In Bible times, you know, fishing and farming and shepherding were all common industries in the time and the place the Bible was written, so we hear a lot about that. Not so common for us. Uh, but a, a shepherd would be one who would know his sheep. In fact, stories are told of a shepherd who could even have his flock mixed up with another flock, and the shepherd could just speak his words. He could call to them, and the sheep who knew him would follow him. And there's this familial relationship that a shepherd would have with his sheep. And Jesus offers that to you and to me, that out of all the crowd, all, all, the, all the complexity of the world, Jesus would actually see us, care for us, tend to us, love us, in a way that obviously a lot of earthly leaders don't have any clue how to do. And so I look at it this way. We can experience his care and his leadership in our lives. That's what it means to have a shepherd. Someone cares for you. Someone's leading you. And so you can look at Jesus, kind of the ultimate shepherd, and say, Lord, I, I, I appreciate your care. I thank you for your care. And of course, I embrace your leadership. Why would I want to go my own way? Why would I want to leave your protection why would I not want to follow your vision, Lord, when you're the good shepherd? You're the one who has the plan in play for me to, to, to carry me all the way from earth into eternity. Why else would I follow another? And why would I try to follow my own wisdom instead? So what I'd like us to do is take a few minutes to pray and to just think of Jesus being our shepherd. And, uh, and I'd, I'd ask you to close your eyes and bow your head for just a moment. And I just want to ask you some questions and prayer that you can then respond to the Lord um, to these questions just in your, own, in your own heart. And the first question is this. Lord, have I, have I embraced you as my shepherd to welcome your leadership in my life? Lord, this week, where have I had opportunity to follow you as my good shepherd or to feel your care for me? Lord, when you speak to me, do I respond to your voice immediately? Lord, in what, in what way would you like to lead me forward this week? Lord Jesus, we know you are more caring and more committed to us than we really even could comprehend, a lot more so than we deserve. We see in this text that you are the good shepherd who came to bring us the fullness of life, abundant and joyful and thriving life. And we recognize, Lord, that you are so committed to that cause that you laid down your life for us, the sheep. Thank you. Lord, for that amazing love. 
as we consider what it means to be led by you, as we consider what it means to really trust you. I pray that you give us grace this week to follow your lead, to feel your care when we are going through difficulty. Lord, even to embrace your correction when we step off the path or walk the wrong direction. We're so glad, Lord, that you came to be a shepherd to your people and that you would welcome us into that group. We pray all this and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I'd encourage you to continue on reading in John up through chapter 11. Next week, we'll talk about it. Until then, God bless you. You're dismissed.